This book, The Acts of the Apostles, a marvelous book, tracing for us the beginning and the early history of the Christian church. The Acts of the Apostles. And of course, the apostles were greatly involved in all that happened. Some have suggested, and maybe rather than calling it the Acts of the Apostles, we should call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, or indeed the Acts of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke, who is the writer of this book, speaks at the beginning of his first book, The Gospel According to Luke, that he was recording all that Jesus began to do and say. And this is the continuation of it. And it's a marvelous book. Jesus had risen from the dead. After his resurrection for 40 days, we are told that he met with his disciples, not just the inner circle, but the wider band of disciples. And for 40 days, he taught them concerning the kingdom of God. And of course, the kingdom of God was the Lord's great intent, his design to establish his kingdom, uh, his rule and his reign, where every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And of course, that day will come. And Jesus gave to his disciples after his resurrection two promises and an exhortation. Two promises that really go together. He says, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then this exhortation, you shall be my witnesses in Jer Jerusalem, all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Chapter 2 of Acts records the church's baptism with the Holy Spirit. And how the apostles, those men who had been hiding away, fearful from the authorities, how they were now empowered by the Spirit of God to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Christ in Jerusalem. And with amazing effect, thousands were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, when God moves in grace, you can be sure that Satan will rise up to stir up opposition to the gospel. Chapters 4 and 5 of Acts record the beginning of that opposition from the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin. They sought to silence the apostles. They then had them arrested and put in prison. And yet we are told in chapter 6 of Acts and verse 7 that the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and, and that a great many priests were obedient to the faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ was beginning to have an impact in the temple and in the temple worship, the, the source which had been the source of so much opposition to Jesus' ministry. We know that at this time the the apostles, the disciples, had not broken away from the Jerusalem temple. That would come later. That would change. And the catalyst for change was a Jewish Christian called Stephen. We read about him in chapter 6 and 7 of the Acts. 
And Stephen appears to have understood, perhaps first amongst the disciples, that the Jewish temple worship with its sacrifices and its priesthood was now obsolete with the coming of Christ Jesus. This Jesus is the great high priest, and he has come, and he has offered the final and the ultimate sacrifice for sin, and he has opened a new and a living way to God. So that the temple worship, as it then stood, no longer fulfilled any purpose. It was part of the old covenant, the old order of things, and the new day had dawned. A new covenant had been revealed in Jesus Christ. We read, for example, in Hebrews chapter 8 and 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he treats the first as obsolete. That is, the Lord God treats the first as obsolete. And, and what is obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. If you want to read further in that, you can read Hebrews uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10. Stephen clearly understood that his preaching of Christ, uh, understood all of that, and his preaching of Christ reflected it. The Jewish authorities were enraged. This man is blaspheming, they said. He's speaking against the temple. He's speaking against Moses. And they fiercely reject the testimony and the teaching of Stephen. Stephen is in no doubt that their rejection of the gospel, the good news of the Messiah, is a willful disobedience to the leading of God. And we find that in Stephen says in chapter 7, verse 51, he says, You're a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This was too much for the authorities, the religious authorities. The church had its first martyr in Stephen. And that was only the beginning of persecution. Now in Acts chapter 8, which we read uh, today, God continues in his pursuit of his great purpose. The commission that Jesus had given to the disciples to go and to teach all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, preaching in Jesus' name to evangelize the world, not just Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, to evangelize the world. In this chapter 8, Luke popularizes the Greek word it's a word that we get from our we get our English word evangelize, literally to bring good news. It's used, it was used once before in chapter five, but here in this chapter five times. Evangelism is to engage in proclaiming good news. An evangelist is one who brings good news. And Philip is an evangelist. Indeed, in Acts 21, he's referred to as Philip the Evangelist. He must have had a special gift in evangelism. And we're told here in verse 5 of Acts 8 that 
Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The good news is the good news of the word, as it says in verse 4. That those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip proclaimed to them the Christ. And in verse 12, he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The good news is the good news of the word. It's the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus. And there's something very important in these verses that we read today that I want to share with you again. It's simple, but they're very significant. And the first is this, the content of the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news. There can be no evangelism without the evangel. That is the good news message. No evangelism without the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of Jesus. The church's task is evangelism. You shall be my witnesses, says Jesus, to evangelize the world. Jesus is that good news. That is, Jesus in his incarnation, the Son of God who takes flesh to dwell amongst us. Jesus in his life, my food, he says, is to do the will of him that sent me. Jesus in his death, I have come not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Jesus in his resurrection, who presented himself to the apostles and others alive after his passion by many proofs and over those 40 days. Jesus in his ascension, he's at the Father's right hand. He's exercising kingdom authority and kingdom rule. Jesus in his promised return in glory. This Jesus will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, said the angel. This Jesus is the evangel. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus in his birth, in his life, in his death, his resurrection, his ascension to glory, and his return in glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus, the sum and the substance of the gospel. We must never lose sight of that. He is the content of our preaching of the gospel. If Christ ceases to be the message that we proclaim, Christ in his eternity, Christ in the flesh, Christ in his obedience, Christ in the atonement, Christ in his glory, Christ in his coming again, if that ceases to be our proclamation, it's no longer gospel, it's no longer evangel. And the message that we proclaim and declare, however eloquent, however relevant, however arresting it is, is robbed of its content and robbed of its power. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, not the eloquence of the preacher or the ability of the evangelist, but the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, and that gospel 
is Christ. And so we read in verse 5 here of Acts chapter 8 that Philip, the evangelist, proclaimed to them the Christ. And we are told that the Samaritans believed to the salvation of their souls. We read, read later on how uh, Philip is to meet an Ethiopian on the road to Gaza. And we are told that he expounds the Old Testament scriptures of Isaiah that the Ethiopian was reading and didn't understand. And he expounded, Philip expounded the scriptures to him by declaring to him, we are told, verse 35 of this chapter, by declaring to him the good news of Jesus. So Jesus was a content, even of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah. And nothing has changed in two millennia as regards the gospel. Let's never imagine that the plain gospel of the crucified and risen Savior has somehow, with the passage of time gone past, its sell-by date. The modern quest for innovation, for novelty, for connection and for relevance and so on must never be allowed to obscure the never-changing gospel. Yes, we need to connect with people. We need to be relevant to the world in which we live. There is place, certainly, at times for innovation, but it must never obscure the never-changing gospel of the kingdom of God, verse 12 here, the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And by name, it means all that Jesus is and all that he has done. So that's the first thing the content of the gospel. Secondly, just as we must never lose sight of the content of the gospel, neither ought we to abandon the primary method of evangelism. And we find that uh, stated very clearly here uh, in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them. Verse 12, that is, he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, they went about preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And verse 35, Philip opened his mouth beginning with the scriptures. He told, proclaimed, or preached the good news of Jesus Christ and so on. We should never despise or abandon the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. God has given us his word to be preached. That's the very reason that God has given us his word, in order that be proclaimed, that it be declared, that it be preached. The gospel is for preaching Christ is to be preached. Now, we live in an age when the Scriptures are despised, and God's Word is written off as outdated and irrelevant, a relic of history. And it's not just the likes of the new atheists, Richard Dawkins and others, or the liberal critics in the academic world who are guilty of that. But often the professing Christian or the church member who rarely reads the Scripture or seldom applies its truth 
and its teaching to daily life is just as guilty of despising the Word of God and the content of the Word, which is Christ. How the preaching of the Word is downgraded today. It may be endured, may be accorded a place, but whatever, don't let it run over 20 minutes at any one time. I've heard the old mantra time and time again, if you can't say what needs saying in 15 minutes, it's not worth saying. What nonsense that is. Dr. Kidd, the famous Dr. Kidd of Aberdeen, he, he was born in Bershain. He was raised early years in Bershain. He eventually went to study in, uh, in America and returned to Scotland, took up a charge in Gilcomston Church in Aberdeen, eventually became a, a professor in the college. But in Gilcomston, Gilcomston was used to three Sunday services. In the morning, the Old Testament was expounded. In the afternoon, the Gospels were preached, and in the evening, the Epistles uh, were preached. Dr. Kidd preached at those three services. There were 2,000 people at each service. Possibly many of them were the same at each service. And his sermons, we're told, never, usually never exceeded an hour and a half. Don't know if you want to pass it on to William Moody or not, but uh, it's not the thing, the sort of thing that we necessarily want, want to, um, to follow. But people were hungry for the word. They wanted to hear the gospel. The gospel was proclaimed, and there was no such thing as reducing it to a few minutes homily. Some will say, well, aren't there other ways, more acceptable, more effective, more endurable, more innovative than preaching? Preaching's a turnoff. It just doesn't connect anymore. One Sunday when I was uh, leaving the pulpit, went down to one of the doors of my church in, in Bershain, and a lady came, and um, I think she refused to shake my hand, but she looked at me with a look at, at, that, would, uh, that would melt iron, and she said, well, that was some marathon. There's another lady in the congregation who was in her 80s, came to church with a walking aid, one of those three-wheel jobs, and she said to me, why did you stop so soon? She said, I could have listened for another half hour to the sermon this morning. Don't it depend on our attitude and how we come, how we prepare our hearts to hear the Word of God. Of course, there are many ways of disseminating the gospel. Of course, there are. And there are times and situations where those things are demanded, maybe rather than the preaching. But Paul's words to Timothy have never lost their application. In his second letter to Timothy and chapter 4, in the first verses of that chapter, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead 
and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be urgent in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, and exhort, beyond failing in patience and in sound teaching. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own liking, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. As for you, always be steady, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Those words are as pertinent today as ever they were. Jesus' commission was to go to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, into all the world, he said, and preach in his name. There's the method, to preach in his name. That's the content, to preach who Jesus is. Now, just a third and final thing. Isn't it interesting how the church was enabled to carry out Jesus' commission? Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. On that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You remember that record earlier on, the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 2, how the disciples, uh, after the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit and so on, they were gathered together, they were gathered together and, and, and they were uh, sharing in, in the, the meal and they had all things in common and they were giving themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to prayer and the breaking of bread. Wasn't that marvelous? And wouldn't it have been wonderful just to have continued in that happy, that loving, caring, comfortable environment, enjoying the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. But the Lord had other ideas. He was pursuing that plan of salvation to the nations. We remember the covenant with Abraham, Genesis. How that he would be a blessing and his seed would be a blessing to the nations. And of course, the seed ultimately was Jesus, would be a blessing to the nations. How in Isaiah, in those great uh, chapters of the servant of the Lord, uh, that he was given, it said, as a light to the nations. Remember the song of Simeon in Luke chapter 2 when he cradled the child in his arms and he says, My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for glory to the people Israel. Revelation to the nations. Jesus, I am the light of the world. Go make disciples of all nations. The vision of John in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, was something that would come, was already in God's blueprint. In Revelation, chapter 7, 
Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude with no man could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels stood round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, on that day a great persecution arose. It broke like a storm. No doubt the storm had been gathering for some time, but it broke like a storm through Paul, through, through Saul the Pharisee. Saul was ravaging. He was devastating the church. The word that's used expresses a brutality, a sadistic cruelty. He was breathing out threats and murders, we are told. Later on, after his conversion and his testimony uh, before the Sanhedrin, he said, I persecuted this way to the death. And before King Agrippa, he said, I condemned believers to death. Where was God in this? Where was God in all of this? The persecution, the scattering, and so on. Well, God was right there at the helm. He was right there in the eye of the storm. He was pursuing his purpose. He was accommodating the church in her mission. How is this accommodating the church? Well, we're told they were all scattered, and those who were scattered went about preaching the Word, preaching Christ. First, they were gathered in Jerusalem and devoting themselves to the teaching and to the prayers, and then they were scattered. Having been taught, they are scattered. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Persecution. That's the devil's work. Scattering, I think that's God's work. For evangelism. So who's in control? Well, the risen Lord is in control. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He's in control. That's what he said. And Philip went down to a city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. We see how God is unwrapping his purposes. Nothing's going to frustrate his plans. It was a Pharisee called Gamaliel, famous Pharisee and teacher and rabbi of that day. And it was Gamaliel of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. He was absolutely right in what he had said. In chapter 5 and verse 33. They were enraged. They wanted to kill the disciples. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up, ordered the men to be put outside for a while. That's the, the disciples. 
And he said to them, men of Israel, that is, he said to the council, the Jewish council, men of Israel, take care what you do to these men. For before these days, Thaddeus arose, giving himself out to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was slain, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean arose in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail, just as it had with Thaddeus and with Judas. But if it is of God, said Gamaliel, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And how right he was. He may not have known it himself, but he was right in what he was saying. The Lord still pursues his purposes. And he calls us, the church today, the church together wherever it's found. Individual believers like us within God's church. He calls us to get on board with him. To go. To make disciples. To share the good news. To preach the word in season and out of season. In whatever fashion, whatever place, in whatever way God calls us to do that. We not, may not be called away into another part of the world. We may not be called into full-time ministry of the gospel, but we're all called as the children of God, as believers in Christ, to share that good news. And who knows what God may do for the good news, however we present it, however we share it, sometimes maybe in trembling, Sometimes our faith is small, but however we do it, it is the power of God. It's not our eloquence, not our ability, not our gifts, but it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who hears and who believes.